a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Come on in for an evening of poems and stories about the American West. A land of legend, of romance, of friendship and courage. A motherload of remembrance. A true showcase of the Old West with the old cowboy, J.C. Holsey. Well, folks, it's a storm in here in Texas tonight. I sure hope the thunder and the lightning don't mess up the show. We're going to go ahead no matter what, because just like the cowboys that brings in the cows, whether it's coming a blizzard or not, the show's going to go on. we got some great country music and a visit with a great author. Let's listen to one of the Wild West Showdown singers right now. This is Nathan T. Hunt doing one of his songs. If it ain't right, don't blame it on me. I'm not strong on ambition. I don't like to take the ball. I let other folks make decisions. I don't want to be accountable. Ain't going to climb no corporate ladder. I bruise easily when I fall Gonna sit right here My feet in this chair And not do a thing at all And if it ain't right Then I didn't do it If it ain't right Don't look at me I got my whole life If it ain't right, don't blame it on me. For some people, things fall into place that just ain't natural. The chances we take, the choices we make, determines what the future holds. If I don't take no chances, then I won't have to take a fall. I'm gonna sit right here, finish my beer, and gonna do a thing at all. And if it ain't right, then I didn't do it. If it ain't right, don't look at me. If it ain't right, don't blame it on me. If it ain't right, then I If it ain't right, don't look at me. I got my whole life behind me to prove it. And if it ain't right, don't blame it on me. If it ain't right, you can't blame it on me. Wasn't that a great song? 
Thanks, Nathan, for sharing that with us. I'm really proud of each and every one of our singers here on the Wild West Showdown. They're all very talented, and they're willing to share that talent with us each week. Now let's learn a little bit about stagecoach drivers. The stagecoach driver played a very important part in the Wild West. You might look at a stagecoach driver's job and say it's not all that dangerous. It wasn't quite as dangerous as working as a cowboy or a gambler or a soldier or a lawman, but it did require a bold and strong character. From the earliest days of stagecoaching, these many men and women, yes, I said women, there were women stagecoach drivers who went by several nicknames such as Whip, Charlie, Jehu, Rangeman, and others. They've been likened to the Roman chariot racers centuries ago. Not just anybody could handle the job that required excellent horsemanship, driving skills, and often great courage as they traveled through hostile Indian country and were the constant target of bandits. The many stage routes covered a variety of terrain on often narrow and rugged trails through deep sands, endless mud, and along steep inclines. There was far more men than there were women driving stages, but as I said earlier, there were women stagecoach drivers, such as Charlie Parkhurst, Mary Fields, and Delia Haskett Rawson. Regardless of their gender, though, most all were under the age of 40. On some routes, each driver would have his or her own section, which they would drive over and over, generally covering about 50 miles. The drivers controlled the teams with the use of the reins and their whips, which were often made to their exact specifications. If their coaches carried the U.S. mail, they were required to swear the oath of mail contractors and carriers, often carrying valuable freight, especially around mining camps, shotgun messengers rode with the stage in order to protect the cargo and passengers. Many stage companies went out of business because it was a tough business to be in at that time. Butterfield Overland Dispatch was one of the more successful, however, it only lasted for five years. John Butterfield got his start as a stagecoach driver at age of 19. Then he began his shrewd business sense to own and operate American Express and the Overland Mail Company. Buffalo Bill was a stagecoach driver. He was also a freighter, a cattle driver, a Pony Express rider, and a Civil War soldier, a buffalo hunter, and an army scout before he began entertaining great numbers of people in his Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. As I mentioned earlier, Mary Fields, a.k.a. Stagecoach Mary, she was born as a slave in Tennessee. She was one of the first stagecoach drivers and pioneers of the American West. Charlie Parkhurst, One-Eyed Charlie, Mountain Charlie, Six-Horse Charlie, born 1812, died in 1879. She was a female, tobacco-chewing, cussing, gambling, California stage driver. Then there was Charles Charlie E. Parks. Parks was one of the most faithful and capable Pony Express riders before becoming a longtime defender of Wells Fargo stages. Henry Wells and William Fargo saw a great opportunity in the West after gold was discovered. They helped to found American Express in 1850. Officially created Wells Fargo and Company on March 18, 1852 with two primary objectives, transportation and banking. Wells Fargo is still a big banking institution today. Now let's visit with our special guest. We want to welcome to the Wild West Showdown today, Arthur Ron Stell. Welcome, Mr. Stell. Why, thank you, J.C. It's a pleasure to be here. I understand you grew up in Houston, Texas in the 60s. Were you born there? 
I was. I actually was born there in the 50s. I lived in West Palm Beach for a couple of years and then came back to Houston in 1960 and stayed there till I joined the Navy. I was raised there, yes. All right. How long were you in the Navy? I was in the Navy about 23 years. Oh, goodness. Where are you living now? We live outside Chicago, a place called Oswego. It's a nice little village that's about 40 miles out of Chicago, so we're not really part of that world. Just nice, easy living. It's kind of a suburb living. How does it compare to living in Texas? Well, I haven't lived in Texas in 40 years, but it's oh, okay. a lot better weather. <laughs> I'll never forget the humidity down there. It was terrible, but it was a wonderful place to grow up, though. It was nice. In uh, my age group where I was, it was a very nice thing. All right. And that was around Houston, you said? Correct. It was in the southwest suburbs. When we moved there and to Westbury, it was only like four years old. The trees weren't even as tall as I was. I read someplace that you're a musician. What instruments do you play? I play the guitar and the drums. I grew up learning the rock and roll, and of course there's country music around Texas, so it was a little bit of both worlds, but I gravitated towards the, the rock and roll because that's, I guess that's who I was, was inside me, so I played in bands and did all of that until I joined the Navy, and then um, I still occasionally get on there to unwind, but I don't play in bands anymore. All right. And you were a service advisor in the automobile industry, is that correct? When I came out of the Navy, my job in the Navy was navigator, so I didn't really have a lot of what they call corresponding civilian jobs to transfer over to. Like, if I'd have been a corpsman, I could have gone into the nursing industry, or if I'd have been a bosun mate or a machinist, I could have gone into that kind of world. But as a navigator, you basically have a couple options. You can do a cruise boat, or you can do tugboats. And I've been doing it for so long, I decided to try something new. So I went into the service industry, and I turned out pretty good at it. Okay. Is there a reason that you decided to stay in the Navy so long? Yeah, I got real lucky. I came in, and the first ship I was put on was one of the best ships in the fleet. It won all the awards, had a fantastic crew, and we went overseas. I got to see Europe, and I loved traveling so much, and I had such a good experience the first time. I said, well, let's just let's just stick this out, because now, looking back, you know, I put 23 years on. I've been retired from the Navy for 15 years, and I still get my retirement check, and I still have free medicals. Me and the wife have free medicals, and we have that money coming in forever, so to put 20 years of a lifespan, especially if you're young and you come out at 38 or 39 and you still got 30, 40 years left and you're getting that kind of free medical mm-hmm. and uh, a paycheck every week, you can't go wrong. Can't go wrong with that, no. All right, uh, you just mentioned a wife. You are married. Do you have children? I have four children, two daughters, two sons, and four grandchildren. I understand you're a pretty good grandpa. I love being a grandpa. There's something different. It's something different about it. It's, I just love it. I guess when you get older and you've been through a lot and you've seen how the world works and see the children and the innocence and, and help be a part of them, uh, you're more experienced, you're more knowledgeable, and I guess you really appreciate the love of a child like you, like you never would have before. Yes. Let's go back to the Navy just a minute. I remember my years in the Air Force, some of the best years of my life, I think. Do you consider that also? I don't find anything like civilian life, is what I'm trying to say. No, it was uh, structured, but uh, the traveling was it was wonderful, and it was organized, and you never had any questions for people who gone along the path where they, they got fired or had to quit or something. This doesn't happen in the Navy. You're there for the duration unless you just do something completely stupid, and it's uh, it's a good structural environment, and it's, it helps you stay close to America, and you get to travel a lot. So, yeah, I thought it was wonderful. How old were you when you began writing? 56. What made you decide to get into the book business? I'd always been had a great imagination. As a kid, I grew up with comic books and superheroes and always gravitated towards that imagination process, you know, dreaming about what could be. And 
I'd always had a fairly decent uh, command of the English language. I went to the college while I was in the Navy, so I got a degree and didn't use it. But I did go get my English tightened up a little bit. And Facebook came around, and I here I was in Chicago area, and all my kids I grew up with were in Houston. So I, this was a good way to reach out and touch some of the people I hadn't seen in years. So I did that. And then just because I felt compelled to do it, I started writing daily motivational statements for folks who might be in, in need of some cheering up or some encouragement. And I called it a short pause. And and uh, one day my wife at the end of the couch and I'm at the other one. And she says, uh, you need to write a book. I go, why? And she said, because you're very good at writing what you, what you write here and touches people. And if you can write that kind of a statement, I think you could probably write a book. You might as well see if you can. So I said, yes, ma'am. And I thought about what's the best thing I could possibly write about. Uh, what's something that I'm uh, knowledgeable about? And I thought, you know what? Growing up in the 60s with 14 children that were all within two years of each other's age was a great upbringing. And we never once had to use our thumbs to entertain ourselves. So I thought I'd write something for my generation to tell folks could remember how it was. And then I also thought I would show the new generations how you can actually have a great life and much fun without having to stand in front of a, a TV or a video screen. You mentioned 14 children. Is that your family? No, there was 14 kids on my block who oh, were all okay. within two years' age of each other. So that's a lot of kids to be hanging out. You know, we back in the 60s, you went out and you played. You did forts. You did war. You did football. You did basketball. You did baseball. You made up games. You played board games. So yes. we always had something to do, and we stayed out from dawn until whenever we came in. And parents didn't worry about us. Everybody's house was their own. It was a very safe time. It was a very patriotic time, so uh, I wanted to delve into that and bring that forth, so I wrote a book called The Streets of Our Youth. A lot different than today, wasn't it? Real different. That's what started it, and once that faucet was turned on, it never turned off. I finished that book, and it only took me seven weeks to write a 300-page book, and I was astonished that it was that easy for me. So I came to the conclusion that I had an untapped gift. I consider being able to do something that's really hard for others, but simple for you, is probably a God-given gift, so that's the way I treated it, and I just kept writing. Okay, how did you feel when you got that first book in your hand that had your name on the bottom of it or the top of it as the author? felt amazing, of course. I'd always been an avid reader. I, that, that's the other thing. I, being a reader of books, I'd read and read and read. You know, in the Navy, you have a lot of spare time on deployment. So I would read hundreds of books on deployment over the years. It turned into thousands. So, you know, reading takes you away, puts you in a different place, makes your imagination work. And I really admired the office that I read. Which, and to see my name on a book really felt awesome. Yes, it does. It didn't make me a millionaire overnight, and I soon learned the reality of the business, but uh, it never stopped the uh, creative process. You mentioned comic books. Did you read much as a kid? Voraciously. From the time I could read, which is about, I guess, four or five, I, I read all the Marvel comic books, all the Superman, all the Tarzan. That probably planted the seed of my creativity and my ability to write fiction books, creating characters out of nowhere and putting them into scenarios. Uh, again, I think it's the seed that developed into the gift. So, yeah, I read a lot. Do you have a favorite genre? I do really. I started out reading pretty much science fiction horror books when I started because that's what I grew up liking. But I soon came into the detective mysteries. That kind of became the one I read half over the years. I would always pick up a Dean Kuntz or Stephen King book whenever they came out, but I would normally go for the 
John Sanford uh, prey novels or the James Patterson novels because they had certain central characters that were the star of each book. And so uh, I decided to write my own detective murder mystery, and I created a couple of characters that are going to be part of that series. So it'll be in along the same lines. These characters are the same ones in each one of these novels, but they have different uh, experiences. Do you use an outline when you write? I do not. I write, I guess you could say, like a rogue elephant. I get an idea and I just start writing and it's like I turn on a, someone in my head that dictates to me what to say. There's really no thought about what's going to be happening in the next chapter or how I'm going to end it. I just go. And I liken it to traveling across country at night. And I ride as far as the headlights take me, but I don't know what's beyond the curve. And I, I know that I'm going to get to the end, but I don't know when or what it's going to be like when I get there. So I don't do the traditional outlines and all of that. I just write the story and then I do a hard edit. Then I send it to someone to do an even harder edit. We go from there. So you're just as surprised as the reader is when you start a story. I am. And uh, anything can start it. You're right. You're right. My wife will be sitting and I'll start laughing and I'll and she'll, what's so funny? I go, well, I fell into the characters cracked me up. Yeah. And she kind of looked at me. and I mean, they do. I wrote it and then I read it and it's hilarious or it's uh, intriguing or gripping. So yeah, that's kind of a fun thing too. To it, is, it is so exciting to let your character take off like that. Exactly. And I can't understand anybody that wants to tie themselves to an outline or to a deadline. It just doesn't make sense to me. I couldn't do it, no way. How much research do you put into one of your stories? None. What I, what I do is I'm on my uh, tablet, and I always have Wikipedia and other sources next to it on the same, you know, that I can push and bring up on the other screen. <laughs> so if I do write something that has to be valid, I check and read into it so that I make sure I'm talking about something that actually occurred. Or So I always double-check to make sure I have the right input. But the great thing about fiction is I don't have to have footnotes and carryovers, and I got this from that, and I got this from that, because I'm creating a world. But it's got to be a world that reader can say, oh, yeah, you know, and they've heard of things like that. There's a license to do pretty much whatever you want because the whole thing is from your head. I noticed some great trailers on the Internet. Who creates those for you? I did most of it myself. You're right. I thought a couple of them were pretty good, but they have some programs out there that help you a lot. Yeah, that's true. But they are, they are definitely good, yes. You design your own covers also then? I did all my covers, but Extreme Options, that was done by my publishers, graphic artists. How about advice for somebody that wants to be an author? Just go out and write. If you think you have the gift, sit down, come up with a story, and just let it come out of you. Don't worry about commas and quotations and, and all of that. Get the book out, then read it yourself after you've written it. Make sure that it flows. Read it out loud if you want to catch all the glaring mistakes. And then find someone on Facebook or the Internet that will do your very inexpensive edit to help you. And then once you have a polished product, you can send it out to the publishing houses that are accepting them. Or you can do it on your, your cell phone creator space and just have an, uh, a, what they call a digital version, Kindle. The first thing is just go ahead and, and do it. Do it yourself. Just do it. That's Get what it I... out there. Yeah, if you don't do it, you'll never know, right? That's exactly right. Are you working on something now? I am. I'm working on a supernatural thriller called The Mill. It's coming along quite well, and uh, I expect to have that done in a couple of months at the most. We talked a little bit earlier about you reading comic books. Did you have a favorite comic book out of all those you read? Superman, and then maybe uh, Thor and the Hulk, and then the Tarzan ones were always great, too. I always wanted uh, those were my top three, and then, then Spider-Man as they came out. So just a field superhero one. So you can't just name one, can you? <laughs> Well, I can't because I like the I know, I know the feeling. Yeah, exactly, yes. How about a favorite movie back when you were young? Uh, 
The Angry Red Planet was 1960. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts were really good. Any of the Tarzan movies, that's the ones of my, my generation. They just stand out right off the bat. Okay, what was your favorite treat as a kid, like candy, cake? Uh, coconut cake. Coconut cake. You still like coconut cake today? I do, but I don't have it nearly as often as I used to. <laughs> okay. Now listen, we want to thank you for being a guest on the Wild West Showdown today, and, and I want to invite you to come back and visit any time. I am very appreciative, and you have yourself a wonderful weekend. Uh, I'm going to do that. Thank you. Now let's take a listen to Brenton Bobo, Sinners Like Me. All right. This is a song that I wrote Larry Scroggs a while back. It's called Sinners Like Me. Um, I'm going to put it out there and see what you think, see if you think we need to demo it in the studio or let it ride. Appreciate you guys listening. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll give her a go, see how it turns out. Thanks. I'm that man on the corner that you pass every day. For change. When you look my way, you don't see me. You see what's left of what I used to be before bullet holes from the war. A hero no one wants anymore. But I fall.
You want to know what I think, Brenton? That was great. Thank you so much. I know I've talked about this many times. However, I'm going to keep talking about it until the majority of authors knows about it. What is this subject that's got me so stirred up? It's publishers that take advantage of authors. I've looked over some contracts recently that authors have signed on the dotted line, and they've regretted it since day one. I know it's a little late for those that have already signed, but perhaps there's somebody out there that's considering siding with a publisher. I'd ask you to go over that contract with a fine-tooth comb. Look at the fine print. Take it to the lawyer. Get his opinion and have him explain that fine print to you. I know how badly we as authors want to be published and get our work in print, but do your research. If you find a publisher that looks interesting, check their track record. What have they done to help some other author? Check out the company that you're going to deal with. Don't sign away so many years that if things don't work out, you won't have to suffer as long. I read a contract where a guy signed for six years. His book is tied up for six years. What if things don't work out? What if something happens? What if he wants out of this contract? Also, we have publishers that's not going to release your book for 18 months. You know, that's a year and a half. We signed the contract, so we want to get our book out there. And we got to wait 18 months? That's unrealistic. Does the contract protect you, or is it one-sided where almost everything is on the publisher's side? Is there an escape clause? What I mean by that is there a way to cancel the contract if you're not satisfied? I read one contract that had a way to cancel it, but the author had to pay $500 for each book signed with that publisher. That author has seven books, an impossible task for the new author or even some of the more seasoned authors. It seems that these unscrupulous publishers thrive on naive authors who just want to be published. I ran across a young lady at an event that told me I didn't know what I was talking about. Everything that I said, she said it can't be done that way. I could have stood there all day and not have changed her mind nor her changed mine. But if I had another opportunity to speak with her, I'd ask her this. How many books have you published? I personally have published over 40 titles of my own. I've published 27 titles for my Outlaws Publishing Authors and have several more ready to go. Yet, according to this young lady, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll also say this. You don't have to sign with an agent or a publisher. You can publish your own book, which that young lady disagrees with. Folks are doing it every day. Folks are publishing their own book every day, and you can too. I'm asked all the time, how do I do that? I tell folks to Google it or go to YouTube and search for self-publishing. There's a lot of folks that will explain it to you. I hope this has helped those that haven't already stepped into that big trap of those publishers that want to rob you of your work and your money. I bet you thought I forgot about telling you about the Wild West Showdown, didn't you? (laughs) Well, I almost did. So here goes. I'd like to hear from you. Let me know how much you enjoyed the show. Let me know you want to be on the Wild West Showdown. Send an email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. I just got word from the producer that we got time for one more song before we close out the show. This is Lynn Easterly singing 
the tough go shopping. Give me that. Come get home. Red hanging around the house. You know, sad hound dog eyes. It's time to let him go. It's time to realize. He ain't coming back. Get your mind off that track. I've got a remedy that'll heal you real fast. Cause when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. Come on, girl, let's go more hopping. It'll cure your lonesome lovesick blues. Stick with me, you'll be forgotten. Once you get started, there ain't no stopping. When the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. Mirror feels it looks great with snake skin heels. Treat yourself to retail therapy. Skin tight designer jeans will bring back your self esteem. It'll lift you up and get you back on your feet. Cause when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. Come on, girl, let's go. Thank you so much, Lynn, for that great song. We want to thank Lynn for that great song. We also want to thank Brenton Bobo and Nathan T. Hunt for being on the show today and sharing their music with us. We also want to say thanks to Ron Stell for being our guest author. Now let's gather around for some cowboy wisdom. Don't name a pig or a chicken you plan on eating. This is the old cowboy, J.C. Hulsey, saying adios and happy trails. Come on back next week to the Wild West Showdown with the old cowboy, J.C. Hulsey.